Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Mr. Michael Baranowski, and I would normally give him a, a lead-in and explain who he is, except that I am his guest. This is a wacky crossover episode where we're going to appear on each other's programs respectively. So for people that are listening to my program, The Political Orphanage, Michael, who are you? I am a political scientist at North Kentucky University and the host of the Politics Guys podcast. Nice. And uh, I, Andrew Heaton, am the uh, delightful comedian uh, who is uh, kind of (laughs) constantly vagabonding and really not in any particular location, but uh, currently out of Austin, Texas, and the host of The Political Orphanage. And, you know, I, I wanted to say I thought it might be a, a good idea if we gave gave folks at least a little bit of a uh, background as to as to who we are for our respective, uh, well, hopefully potential future audiences. If that if that sounds good to you, Andrew. I love talking about myself. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. I was going to say, why don't you start off then? Sure. Uh, so I'll, I'll make it uh, reasonably quick. I, I'm a comedian, but I have a background in in both politics and, and political satire. Uh, I started doing stand-up about the same time that I, I worked for Congress and uh, wound up working in political media as a, a primetime television writer and doing a lot of political satire videos and now host this podcast, The Political Orphanage, which is politics, news, and comedy from the perspective of uh, I don't really fit into the red team versus blue team slap fight matrix, and so I've designed the podcast for people that are either capable of being friends with people they disagree with or maybe feel like they are not really in either of those political boxes. They don't feel super at home on red team or blue team. Yeah, and that's what I love about about your podcast, aside from, I mean, the humor. It's it's uh, one of the funniest political podcasts I know of, but we're, we have a kind of a similar ethic on the politics, guys. We're all about bipartisanship, and actually, I'm a former far-right Republican. I mean, Ronald Reagan was a little bit to the left of me when I was growing <laughs> up, and— uh, I, I, I kind of moved over, and now I'm sort of a, I, I call myself a center-left Burkean Democrat, which is kind of a weird uh, designation. Ooh. So we, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a strange but, but I, but I uh, combination that, of would, things. I, I, I thought a center-left Burkean Democrat. So you would, be, you would be a Democrat who champions incremental reform over radical change and is a stickler for following uh, proper procedure. Yeah, you you nailed it. Absolutely. There aren't and, too many people who'd know what that means, and, but and, yes. And, and probably have a further penchant for uh, the importance of institutions which hold up society. So you're probably very bothered uh, when um, someone like President Trump, for example, uh, undermines an existing institution like journalism or the courts or something like that. Get out of my head. Okay, yes, that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly it. You know, uh, I often tell people that also, I, you know, I'd be a libertarian if I thought that everyone was as smart and as rational as kind of the typical libertarian I've met. But sadly, that is that has not been my experience of people in general. That is the I, I can tell you that is the most flattering thing to tell libertarians possible. That is a very, very it's a good feint of listen, I think your your political philosophy is just glorious. The problem is not everyone's as smart as you. <laughs> I'm gonna uh, <laughs> I'm gonna steal that, start using that. That's excellent. Oh, please, please do. So uh so yeah, I you know, we've been doing this for a while and I know and I know you have, and uh, uh one of the things we 
we tend to talk about every week on our show is what's going on in the news. And of course, largely lately, that's been that's been impeachment. And I thought maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Uh, that sounds great to me. Uh, so I'll say I don't uh, I normally on my program, I avoid Trump as much as I can just because I feel like uh, the United States has turned into the Trump show. However, <laughs> the the point at which we're we're gearing up to impeach him, I do feel like I have an obligation to to dip into the subject. Uh, and it does seem very relevant today. And on top of that, you uh, you 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 further induced me to to join this conversation because apparently the the analogy that you like to use is Caddyshack. And I was like, yeah. uh, go on. I would love to hear how this <laughs> delightful 80s romp pertains to impeachment. Well, yeah. And, you know, it's one of my it's one of my favorite movies. And I, I don't really think I'm pushing pushing it too far to say that I think to a lot of the political establishment, uh, Donald Trump is sort of the uh, the Rodney Dangerfield character in, in Caddyshack. Uh, Al's it served served it, I believe. And yeah. uh, the. The very vulgar, very rich uh, developer who comes in and upsets everyone app everyone's apple cart, but is sort of a a champion of the people in in a certain way. And uh, everyone who is in power decides they are going to do what they can to take this vulgarian down. And I think to a lot of people that sort of encapsulates what a lot of folks on the, on the left and even you know some folks in the establishment right have been trying to do to Donald Trump. And so that, there's my Caddyshack analogy. What do you think about it? Uh, I actually think that that's pretty spot on. Uh, and and uh, and I'll say for for uh, um, for a a Burkean who probably does not have a big sympathy for Donald Trump, I think that that's a fairly uh, um, uh, even handed approach towards why he's irritating everybody. Uh, but no, I, I think that's about right. And I think that even the uh, the, the analogy of uh, the the existing country club establishment being the old school Republicans works pretty well. Uh, because, you know, you think about when we get into the, the 2016 election cycle, uh, the Republican Party was not a fan of Donald Trump. Donald Trump was a uh, an, an outsider and, um, you know, a he'd been a, a Democrat, you know, four, four years earlier, he'd been a Reform Party candidate or a, a potential Reform Party candidate prior to that. So the, the old Republican establishment, much more stodgy, much more in keeping with the Ted Knight character. Uh, and mm-hmm. the you know the the buttoned up judges and and bishops and whatnot, um, and and I I further think that the analogy is pretty good in that it would seem to me if you were to ask the average person in favor of impeachment why they favored impeachment I think if they were being honest that uh, quite a few of them would really be in favor of it because of the rhetorical style and flavor of governance that Trump has brought to the White House rather than a specific smoking gun. And we can get into the smoking guns in a minute, uh, but, I, but I think that that kind of the, the, the brash vulgarian element of the Trump presidency is, is really one of the defining reasons people don't like it. Uh, and that is certainly the case with uh, Al Cervic in, or Cervich, and I think either way, it's meant to be cervix. I think that's what they were going for. I think it was it, yeah. was, a, it was a tip of the hat to the cervix, little little, little t- tip of the hat to the cervix. Uh, and and I, I think that uh, uh, yeah, that is the case. So I think it's I think it's a very valid analogy. Yeah, I think if if he'd just been a little more uh, classily corrupt, maybe he wouldn't be in as much prob- trouble as he is now. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, like on that note, uh, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I think what's going to happen is there's party line votes both to impeach and, you know, and to and to convict. And so the president won't be, you know, will be impeached, but won't be convicted. And and I guess, you know, 
I'm sort of conflicted about this because you're right in terms of his uh, uh, presentation of self as a Berkey, and I'm very much against the Rodney Dangerfield, Al Cervic type of governance. But my problem here, I guess, is what you might call uh, an evidentiary standard problem uh-huh. in that I feel that if we want to remove a president from office, even one who I, I find is unpalatable as the current occupant, that the standard of proof needs to be incredibly high. And again, that's my Berkey inside coming in saying, I don't want to substitute my own imperfect judgment for that of the country, uh, even though I may think it's completely wrong. And so I would need to be almost completely, absolutely positively certain before I could vote to convict and remove a president from office, any president. And so while I would be very comfortable, happy to vote to impeach the president, I don't think I could actually bring myself, if I, were I a senator, to uh, to convict the president on those grounds. So, somewhere right now, Michael, in, in the halls of Valhalla, Edmund Burke is giving a slow clap <laughs> uh, to, to your assessment of the situation. I will, since, since you've covered the, the Burkean wing, uh, I, will, I will embrace my inner Thomas Paine for the purposes of this conversation and, uh, and, and go the more radical route. So I'll, uh, I, I'm a big fan of a guy named Gene Healy over at the Cato Institute. And one of the things that uh, Healy has pointed out a few times is the uh, surprising statistical reluctance we have to impeach the president. So I'm taking a step back for the moment. We're not, I will talk about Trump, but we're talking about kind of the broad presidency as a whole. Um, two phenomena worth pointing out. One, there's been a massive expansive, uh, a massive expansion of, of executive powers since Woodrow Wilson, and it, it gets bigger every single president. Um, for, you know, for the reason that basically um, the, the, the mantra of both parties is expand the executive when it's our executive. And at the same time, mm-hmm. we've never actually removed a president from office, which is amazing when you think about how contentious American politics are. And I, I think if you ask most Americans, whether they're Republican, Democrat or other, can you name a president that should have been removed from office? They'd probably say yes. Well, yet we've never managed to do it. We would have m- removed Nixon, uh, but we, we didn't. We didn't remove Johnson. We didn't remove Clinton. Um, and for me, I would. I think it probably would be better to have about a 25% removal ratio. I'd say about one out of every four presidents <laughs> should have been pulled out of the, the existing matrix. So uh, I, I like the idea. I, I agree with you, uh, Michael, in terms of the evidentiary threshold. And, and that's kind of where my, my inner proceduralist um, is, is on par with yours in that uh, I do not think if this were a criminal trial, there would be sufficient evidence to overcome the... Um, the the uh, you know reasonable doubt threshold uh, to convict right uh, so if we were if we were in a jury and this was a court of law I do not think that I would I would feel comfortable um, uh, convicting uh, however uh, it isn't uh, it's it's a you know it's it's not necessarily the same threshold and uh, and it's certainly legally and constitutionally not the same threshold and uh, I I overall I think that the executive branch has become so unwieldy and powerful that I would like there to be um, more of a chip away at it. Um, where, where, where I'm kind of concerned is, I think in the short term, um, th- this is how I think this will play out. I think Trump, as you, you as you point out, it's going to be strictly partisan lines uh, on both sides of the aisles. The uh, I think the the there there will be like maybe five blue dog Democrats who are in swing districts that don't vote to uh, impeach the president, um, and uh, there could be one or two Republican senators who vote to uh, remove him. But I don't think so. I, I think what will end up happening is uh, the president will get impeached. Uh, he won't get removed, and it will absolutely play into his existing narrative that he is the bull in a china shop, uh, wrecking ball, Molotov cocktail that the people threw at Washington, and Washington hates him and has been out for him from day one. I, I think it'll actually play into his hands. 
Um, and if, if by some miracle, say uh, John Bolton does uh, decide to testify in the Senate and has such convincing evidence that Trump is removed from office, then uh, well, then Mike Pence is president, isn't he? And and I I think a, a Pence presidency might even be a stronger candidacy than the Trump presidency. So I think that'll happen. L- long term, I, I I like the idea of impeachment in general because I f- I would like for presidents to to realize on sub subconscious level that there actually is a electric fence that they could cross, and if they touch it, they they risk being removed, and that's never really been a serious threat. Um, where where I think it could be problematic is. Uh, that if if we if we engage in this, there's a, a real possibility that for the rest of our lives, whenever the House is controlled by a party that's not the president, there will be an impeachment proceeding. That basically impeachment will become a standard mechanism for just yeah. the political football field. And I, I gotta say, I don't think that would really be problematic. It sounds to me like that would kind of be a um, an inadvertent uh, balance of power facet where. Uh, it's just yep. You, there's there's an even higher uh, higher threshold that the president needs to achieve in order to get the legislative agenda passed. Yeah, I completely agree with you about executive power, and that that's something that's been a concern of mine, no matter who the president is. And and one of my concerns, you know, no matter who ends up winning in in 2020, is nobody seems to really none of the candidates really seem to care a wit about limiting executive power. And why would they? Because they're going to be the executive. But the the extent to which Congress has essentially, I feel, given away its power and abrogated responsibility and authority to the executive is is breathtaking and also just incredibly depressing, if politically understandable. And, uh, you know, I think the framers designed a system based on this idea of institutional struggle struggle. And now, what we have is this sort of bizarro semi-parliamentary system almost in a way. And and I, I just think it's a it's a pretty bad setup. And so I agree with you about some mechanism for limiting presidential power. And I don't see it coming from Congress. My only problem is having the having the Congress have this authority, which I don't think they would necessarily exercise well or often enough if we want to get even close to your 25% removal rate. You know, some governors, they have in some states, there are recall elections and maybe a, a system like that where the people, we go to the people and say, are you are you really sure uh, about this guy now that you've had a chance? You know, maybe that I, I could I could get on board with. But uh, I guess that would be, you know, my thinking on that. Well, I think, I think there's two ways to look at the, the impeachment vote uh, that's forthcoming. Um, one is to view it, if we're going to go with a, par- a parliamentary model, um, then I think the impeachment vote, as opposed to the removal vote, would be akin to a vote of no confidence. Yeah. So um, re- removal is you know, actually toppling the president and, and pulling them out of office, whereas impeachment would be uh, basically a, a referendum on the fitness of the president. Now, now, granted, impeachment is supposed to be for high crimes and misdemeanors, but it does have wide constitutional latitude, and that can include... Um, uh, at least according to Hamilton, uh, the you know the sort of uh, abuse of power, dereliction of duties, that kind of thing. So in in that capacity, I, I, the the vote could could function as such, and and I, and I think should be used more regularly in that capacity. Like if if uh, if if we were in the British Parliament, there wouldn't be a constitutional crisis if uh, if if the you know the ruling party decided that their leader was not fit for office anymore, or alternately just uh, you know. So combative is, is to be thrown out. That happened to Thatcher. That happened to Churchill. Yeah. It happened to a number of people. Um, the other way of looking at impeachment, which I think is probably certainly more American, 
and 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 probably more appropriate for the intensity of the constitutional rigors that we're about to go through is to to view the forthcoming impeachment vote itself as a grand jury and the removal as the trial. So the the for people unfamiliar, because I'm indicted a lot. Uh, I'd say the the, 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 the grand the grand jury is basically just a, a grand jury, which sounds like you know the, the the poshest of juries. What it really means is just whether or not um, there is sufficient evidence to warrant a trial. It's not a statement of guilt or innocence, but rather is this murky enough that we ought to send this to a proper trial? And then the the trial itself would be akin to the the Senate deciding whether or not to remove the president. I do think that there is sufficient um, murkiness here to warrant a trial. If this were, I don't I don't know if, if it were a criminal court. I don't think that there would be sufficient threshold uh, beyond reasonable doubt, as I said earlier. But I do think there'd be enough to warrant the trial itself. Yeah, I I, I certainly agree. I'm I'm maybe ninety percent sure that he did it, but that's not quite enough right. for me. So, uh, but but longer term, you know, I think not only do I agree with you about the vote, but right now I, I would say if I were a, if I were a betting guy, and I am to an extent, I would put my money on Donald Trump winning re-election. That's yeah. that's my prediction because looking at uh, looking at the, how the Democratic race is playing out and so forth, and the and the, the clown car worth of characters that they have there. I uh, I think the president's in a very strong position to to get four more years. I, I think you're absolutely right about that. Like, like I said, and I think the impeachment vote will only strengthen him because he's he's yeah. good at he's good at playing the kind of uh, people's victim card uh, and and at reminding everybody that he's not a part of the establishment. This will just confirm all of that. And I think you combine that with with the 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 frequent abysmal electoral strategy of the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, I, I've said on this podcast or on my podcast before, I think Pete Buttigieg would beat Donald Trump if he were nominated. Uh, and it wouldn't work in any other election cycle because the mayor of I don't remember where Indiana <laughs> would not be a strong contender. But when yeah. the when, when the president is effectively the P.T. Barnum of American politics and his uh, his political background consisted of being a game show host, I, I think that uh, that that is not a non-starter. And I, I think somebody like Pete Buttigieg who can could rally the the uh, the Democrats by virtue of his positions and a number of other factors, but also kind of speaks Middle American. Like I'm I'm from Oklahoma and I get what he's talking about. Like I, I he seems to speak the same argot that I do. Um, I think he would work. Conversely, though, I think there's a very very good chance that what the Democratic Party will do is go, Hey, how could we pick the most progressive candidate? And uh, and okay, let's go with either Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, or or ideally put them on the same ticket together. And if that's the case, I think that they will. Uh, you know, all the, the Democrats are all going to vote for for uh, the Democrat regardless. But they're you know, fifty two percent of the electorate is independent. Um, there are centrists, there are moderates out there, and I think that if they if they nominate somebody very very progressive like uh, uh, like Elizabeth Warren, I, I think that they will alienate that middle faction, and and Trump will be all but guaranteed. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. You know, I was I was talking just yesterday to, to to my students, and this is you know Northern Kentucky. It's a very conservative area. I think Trump Trump won Kentucky by thirty plus points, and the students tend to be pretty middle of the road, center left, center right. And when we uh-huh. were talking about the the Warren and Sanders versus Buttigieg and Biden in terms of just their their student loan debt programs plans, which the kids would care obviously a lot about. I thought that they would they would look at Sanders and Warren and say, "My God, free for everyone!" I I love this idea, but 
But no, they were saying, you know, this is just way too radical, too out there. It's going to cost too much. And we much prefer Buttigieg and Biden's plan. So uh, to me, that's, you know, a little bit of a of, of a proxy, I think, for how things are, are likely to go on a lot more issues uh, more generally. And so I also am hoping that the Buttigieg can kind of continue to rise up because I think there are just way too many problems with Joe Biden when a when a candidate's own staffers are just hoping he doesn't say too much. I think that's a bad, you know, that's a bad yeah, sign. Yeah, I see. Yeah, it, it's it's funny that we we mentioned Joe Biden as the third or fourth name in this process yeah. because I think that's ultimately where he will be. I, I think if if the Joe Biden campaign had like a a crest, it would be a man stepping on a rake. <laughs> I, I just I, I think he's going to go down like a sack of bricks in Iowa. Yeah. He's going to say he's going to make some gaffe. And on top of that, he's just not. I I think Biden as a candidate is is basically a more cuddly version of Hillary Clinton, and we've already had that election. And the yeah. same foibles that that applied to Hillary Clinton will largely apply to to Joe Biden. And so I I, I but I but again I don't think he'll even make it to South Carolina. I, I think he will implode reasonably early on. Uh, but you know before we before we get into the speculation on 2020 though, I don't want to lose sight of the impeachment itself. Um, you know, we, we, you and I have been kind of talking about it in terms of the, the broad, abstract constitutional framework governing it, which I like. That's definitely where I feel most at home at. Um, but I, I do want to get into some of the details itself of, uh, you know, what, what the evidence would be uh, that the Intelligence Committee will, will presumably give to the House and then, and then from there to the Senate. Um, or I, I, guess, I guess the way they do it is what the Intelligence Committee will prepare a brief and then give it to the Judiciary Committee and then they'll right. give it to the House. Uh, right. And then, and then the House will vote to impeach Trump. So I think we we ought to talk a little bit about um, w- whether or not they have a leg to stand on, and and what those legs would be. Um, it it seems to me that the main thing they're going to talk about is, of course, Ukraine and whether or not there was a quid quo, a quid quo pro um, with defense spending. But they could have a few other things as well. I mean, I, I've got kind of a running tally in my mind of things that I would potentially impeach the president on. Uh, that I can get into, but what what is your read on the the last fortnight of impeachment proceedings? Well, I mean, I, I think uh, just like you do that, it will focus on on the Ukraine thing because that's the clearest case. But I, I think there are certainly some other things that potentially they could throw in there. But uh, the Ukraine seems to me the the most clear cut because you have a, a transcript released by the White House. And so that's, you know, that's been stipulated to by both sides as being what actually happened. And plus, you have a lot of, I think, very uh, reputable career employees in the State Department and who have, you know, who have come forward and basically corroborated the overall, you know, the overall story. And so to me, if, even though that may not be enough to convict, I, I think it it strains credulity to argue that that's not enough to to, to move it over to a trial. And so that, that to me, it's just a, it's a very strong case. And anyone who says that there's not enough for a trial, I think is, is just a, an apologist or is not really looking at the, the evidence has been put together so far. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. And, and again, if it were a criminal trial, I don't know that there would be, I don't know that this would be convictable on, uh, you know, I, I think reading the sure. transcript, um, it, it would, it seems to me that Trump is not really likely to be overly concerned with the internal corruption of foreign regimes. That just doesn't strike <laughs> me as the kind of thing that keeps him awake at night. It doesn't no. strike me as the kind of thing that really keeps him awake at night in America. Um, so, so I find that kind of an odd thing that he would just, for the benefit of the Ukrainian people, he would really want the president to <laughs> investigate the Bidens in, in, in regards to, you know, their own prosecutor and that kind of thing. That strikes me as odd. Uh, if, if it's, if it's enough to prove that he did it, uh, probably not a criminal court, uh, uh, court of law. However, uh, again, we should note that with impeachment, um, it's not a court trial, uh, a court trial. 
Uh, and and uh, it, it's interesting now going through the backlog of impeachment rhetoric over the last 20, 30 years, because, you know, the last time we trotted this out was when uh, Bill Clinton was impeached back in, what was that, 98? Eight, yep. Eight, yeah. And uh, you had folks like um, uh, Cass Sunstein and a few others um, that wanted to very, very narrowly uh, in, 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 describe the, the grounds for impeachment. Uh, and um, but but even then, I think one of the one of the better definitions that came out of that period was the idea that it's a high crime or misdemeanor, but uh, but it but it is ultimately at the discretion of the House. Um, they get to determine what impeachment is, and uh, there there is a decent body of thought that if if someone is just completely um, dangerous to the republic, and that could be rhetorically, or it could be in terms of competency, or it could be in terms of uh, you know, psychology, uh, and and you know maybe maybe uh, Richard Nixon during the, the twilight of his administration, when uh, generals literally removed the nuclear codes from him because yeah. they were afraid he was going to nuke everybody in a drunken, insane spree, and something like that. Then there 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 you know there's uh, grounds for it. Um, yeah, with with Trump, I I think I think he probably wanted to f- pressure a foreign government into uh, into going after his political opponent, and and then he kind of doubled down on it, both with China and with Ukraine, where he was like, yeah, yeah, I do want them to do this. Uh, now, in, in that instance, he did not tether it to a quid quo pro, but he does seem to uh, actively be encouraging foreign countries to to meddle in uh, American politics, um, which which I I'm not a fan of, uh, and. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's the main thing that Democrats are going to do. But I, but I think we can go back and, and look at a few other things. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to keep, um, I'm going to keep leaning into my Thomas Paine, uh, okay. burn, burn, burn the house down. <laughs> uh, uh, which, which, uh, it's still for for people that are unfamiliar with this dichotomy that Michael and I are, are drawing. Uh, I think uh, Paine and Burke, Burke's credo would be reform. No, what is it? Revolution is the enemy of reform. Whereas. Thomas Paine's credo would probably be if your house has termites, burn the mother down. <laughs> uh, and, and so he's, he's much more the radical thing. So I'll, I'll, yeah. t- I'll take the paid perspective for our purposes. Um, I do think you can, you can make a case outside of Ukraine for, for uh, impeaching Trump on a few other things. So um, I'll say like Joe Arpaio, for example. Uh, Joe Arpaio, who is uh, one of my least favorite public figures in, in all of America, uh, the, the so-called hardest sheriff in, in, or toughest sheriff in Arizona. Yeah. Um, uh, Joe Arpaio was given a, a direct court order to quit doing a particular practice that the, the courts had previously established as unconstitutional, uh, which was basically just, um, uh, I, I, I could be bungling this, but I believe he was basically just racially profiling people on whether or mm. not he thought they were illegal immigrants or not. Uh, and, and the, the court went, you can't do that. And you certainly can't, you know, arrest them on this grounds if they don't have identification. And he kept doing it after he'd been ordered by the courts not to do it. So he was in contempt of court and he was flouting the law and, and he was arrested. Uh, Trump asked then Attorney General Jeff Sessions to not prosecute him. And when when Sessions, you know, actually tried to apply the law, uh, Trump pardoned him. And it would seem to me that if a president is pardoning political allies just because he disagrees with the interpretation of the courts, that that to me is an abuse of power. Where where the president's basically saying, um, my allies are above the law if if I disagree with the law, and and I have a problem with that on a constitutional grounds. I think that's really uh, shaking up the balance of power and the uh, the the prerogative of the court system. What what say you, Michael? Well, I think I think you're absolutely right about about that. I think that Donald Trump, though, I don't believe he feels in his in his own mind that he's done 
anything wrong because I think that he believes that the president is essentially, you know, an elected autocrat. And if you have the office, you can do what you want for the next four years. And the only check on it is what the, so I think Donald Trump thinks there's, there's, his phone call was, in fact, perfect. And I think, uh, you know, he, he would agree with Mick Mulvaney saying you know, when, when in a moment of bizarre honesty, Mulvaney just said, hey, this happens all the time. You know, yeah, in the Trump administration, absolutely it does. But the deeper point that you make is that disregard uh, for the rule of law, I think, is should be of concern to, to everyone. And to me, would certainly be kind of a more nebulous but very, uh, uh, very sufficient grounds for impeachment. Yeah, yeah, I, um, I, and I think there's a lot of things like that, and and, I, and I'll I'll throw out because I'm I'm sure that there are people uh, listening to to either of our programs that are are more dubious of, of impeachment uh, proceedings than I am, and only see it as uh, partisan hackery. However, I do think um, that that anybody being honest would have to acknowledge that a lot of the things Trump has done, had they occurred during the Obama administration, probably would have been hauled out um, to to the the House and Senate. Uh, and uh, like, like, for example, the, the thing that I thought was going to lead impeachment charges, because this was a, a word I had to learn uh, the day Trump was inaugurated, was the emoluments clause. Yeah. Uh, I had never heard of that before, but everybody was talking about the, the emoluments clause. And, and basically, that is a, a clause in the Constitution which prohibits the president uh, or, or perhaps more federal officers, but at least the president, from receiving uh, material gain. Uh, uh, you know, outside of their salary by virtue of office. So you, you, you can't bribe somebody. You can't give a, you, 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 you couldn't, you're not allowed to tip the president. You're not allowed to bribe the president. The president can only be paid the, the uh, salary that they have. Uh, and initially the, the concern was, um, you know, Trump has Trump Tower uh, and um, diplomats uh, initially were going there explicitly because they wanted to please the president if they were going to be visiting Washington, D.C. So he was benefiting from office indirectly. Uh, and there's been um, uh, there, there's been instances where, uh, and I, I need to iron the details out of this, but it, it's my understanding that when Pence visited Ireland here, uh, you know, three or four months ago, that he went three hours out of his way to stay at uh, Trump Hotel, and so there's some evidence that there could be um, a certain amount of graft coming in. Now, I I, I will acknowledge that that uh, th- this is somewhat shaky for me to claim that that would be sufficient to remove somebody, but what I'm basically trying to establish right here is. If if there were a uh, Barack Obama bookstore in Chicago oh, that suddenly you know blew up in terms of sales during the the Obama administration, I think we would hear from Mitch McConnell about it, where yeah. th- there would be Republicans screaming about the emoluments clause and that you know the, the president was uh, gaining material benefits. So uh, I I, th- I think that the, the threshold is is has been different for Trump than it has been for Obama. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I think the problem, the more fundamental problem is that there are just too many people in in elected in elected positions who put party before country. And that, that that's a big problem. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I think that's absolutely true. What, one of the one of the interesting thought experiments, Michael, that I that I go over with this is when when the impeachment vote gets to the Senate, if in theory, Mitch McConnell were able to do an anonymous vote on whether to remove Trump or not, would he? Uh, and how would it go? And I think Trump would be like, yeah. I think I think seventy senators would probably vote to remove him if they didn't have to put their name on it. Yeah. Uh, but but because of of the uh, intense partisan uh, element of the the current electorate and and the personal loyalty that Trump commands both within the Senate and with his electorate, that is just not likely to happen. Well, see, maybe that's maybe that's the change that we that we can make. I don't know that there's anything in the in the Constitution that that 
that specifies that the Senate vote must be a public vote. So uh, uh, if that's the case, then just through Senate procedure, they could go ahead and make that uh, make that a secret vote. And wouldn't that be wouldn't that be an interesting proposal? That would it would also be really funny too because every Republican would claim <laughs> yeah, exactly. to keep him in. <laughs> but uh there'd be like, you know, the the twenty secret Cylon Republicans that uh-huh. uh oh. were were, you know, you know, in, in the back <laughs> laughing and, and, and drinking bourbon or whatever. Uh, I'll I'll run through a couple of other scenarios for for impeachment that that uh I'll tell you the, the the one that I wish it happened, um and, and perhaps might still, although I don't think Schiff will bring it up in committee. The one that I wish it happened was I wish that Stormy Daniels brought down Donald Trump because that oh, would have man. been just the the, mo- the the most poetic way for the Trump presidency to conclude would have been if uh, Donald Trump and and uh, is a primer because there's been so many so so much drama in this presidential administration for anybody that's forgotten about the Stormy Daniels thing. Um, uh, President Trump, uh, while a candidate, paid his fixer Michael Cohen. Um, to to uh, buy off Stormy Daniels, who's a porn star uh, who allegedly had sex with Donald Trump, and he basically uh, bribed her to um, uh, to to stay quiet. And and the reason that this is uh, of merit outside of the the fun sex of it is that uh, that would probably qualify as a campaign activity since he was running for president yeah. and explicitly wanting to silence her because of her potential damage to the presidential candidacy. And uh, Donald Trump, like any American, is limited in the amount of money that he can donate to a presidential uh, candidate. Uh, and so by virtue of exceeding that limit and and uh, paying her off, he violated campaign law. Uh, now, uh, Michael Cohen did that. And according to Michael Cohen, he did it just because he's buddies with Trump. <laughs> he, just, he just did it as a friend. Uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, what, what I had hoped would happen was the following, um, Trump would attempt to snuff out that tra- that, 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 uh, process from happening and would wind up, uh, would wind up not breaking the law itself in terms of campaign finance, but, uh, obstructing justice in terms of the investigation. And so right. end up getting impeached for obstructing a thing that he didn't actually need to obstruct. That would have been the ideal. If uh, he got brought down by a porn star and his own hubris, yeah. but I, I don't think that's going to happen. That seems to have uh, been been left out of the 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 of uh, the matrix the last few months. Yeah, it is too bad because you're right. It would it would just be all of a piece with everything we know of Donald Trump's entire career, and so it, it is kind of sad that it's something actually you know of substance of weight as opposed to the Stormy Daniels. I I entirely agree with you there, and poor poor Karen McDougal. Just uh, is completely out of the picture because, you know, she wasn't nearly as uh, uh, salacious. She was only a Playboy centerfold that he slept with and not a not an actual porn star. And so, you know, it's uh, oh, well, what are you going to do? Poor Karen McDougal. You know? <laughs> I, I hope. I mean, well, you know, maybe she could uh, she try and sleep with one of the forthcoming presidential candidates now. You know, do, do stage a comeback. I don't know, maybe. Um, <laughs> what, one, one of the other things, and this, this doesn't really so much get into the high crimes and misdemeanors, but it does factor into my overall framework of trying to rein in the presidency. Uh, I, I was um, really aghast uh, in, I think it was June or July, when the House voted to quit selling arms to Saudi Arabia for purposes of, of, of prosecuting the, the, the Yemen war. Uh, Saudi Arabia, our inexplicable ally, um, is uh, at war with Yemen and has been for a while. Uh, and the United States, while not directly at war with Yemen, has been um, materially and um, informationally assisting Saudis in prosecuting that war. And the House, uh, in a bipartisan vote, 
uh, agreed to not do that and go, hey, we, we need to actually have a resolution on whether or not this is a war before we're supporting it materially, and, and we do not, and we're, we're, uh, we're writing to, um, to stop this. And it got passed in the House, it got passed in the Senate, and it uh, got not even vetoed, it got circumnavigated by the president who brought up a kind of obscure Arms Export Control Act from like 1964 or something like that. And, and basically what the president did was just declared a national emergency and went, uh, it doesn't matter what the House and the Senate want, this is a national emergency and therefore I can execute uh, presidential powers. I think on a, on a technicality, uh, I hate saying this, on a technicality, I think he can, because yep. basically what happened was Congress forfeited its own ability. It, it, Congress basically wrote a bill saying, we are, we are delegating this power to the presidency if the president determines there's an emergency. But I, I look yep. at that and go, well, that, that is completely contravened to the spirit of the balance of power, and it's, it's completely antipodal to having a uh you, you know this this internal struggle between the branches and so uh, i was it, it irritated me greatly to the point where I, I think i would vote to remove any president that did that anyway just because i i would i would like to establish more of those electric trip wires to try and rein in executive control yeah i i completely agree and i think that the problem with the national emergency powers i mean there's there's the presidential power to declare a national emergency which is so incredibly vague that the president can basically say just about anything is a national emergency. And when he does that, then there are all sorts of other laws that kick in that give him these enhanced powers in various areas. And that's, of course, one of them. And and so I, I think that Congress uh, would do would do well to restrict the uh, because it's difficult to define what a national emergency is. I get that. But to very much restrict a lot of these other laws that in that allow the president to do greater things when he invokes a national emergency. Yeah, I, I think one thing that they could do, it, it makes sense to me that there was some scrambling in terms of emergency powers and uh, uh, national emergencies at the onset of the Cold War in that um, you know, if, if we go back to even FDR, uh, there's a moment where um, FDR was, I think, visiting Las Vegas or something and his, his cavalcade got lost in a canyon uh, and nobody knew where he was for like four hours. It was just, oh, the president's yeah. gone. And you could you could do that when there weren't nuclear weapons around because yeah. it's you know the, like you know, the likelihood that we're going to have a second Pearl Pearl Harbor happen within the next four hours pretty minimal. And even then, when you get into Truman, um, uh, you know Truman was probably the last president that that didn't you know go gray from contemplating the, the the gloomy specter of nuclear annihilation, or or maybe he did at least at the beginning of his presidency he didn't. Like at one point, he needed to I think he needed to go cash a check or something. So he just walked out the back door of the White House, didn't tell anybody where he was, and just walked over to the bank. <laughs> oh, and geez. like the whole executive branch, you know, flew into a panic. And uh, it's understandable then going forward from that point that we would go, okay, um, the, you know, the, the, the power to declare war rests with the Senate. Um, that is the, the role of Congress and not the president. The president executes the war, but the war itself is constitutionally enacted by, by Congress. However, if there are nuclear missiles flying at the United States, we, we don't have time to invoke Robert's Rules of Order uh, and, and get everybody to sit down and vote whether or not to counterattack Russia. So in, in this instance, we're going to give the president a certain amount of latitude. I think yeah. that that needs to be there. However, I think I would, I, would, I would phrase something like either unless there's an imminent attack on American soil or nuclear missiles involved, that um, it, the, 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 that doesn't work. There, sh there should be a yeah. very clear, bright line. Uh, and well, the, I Yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I think that was the intent of the War Powers Act, you know, passed in, in the uh, in the wake of, of Vietnam, which uh, President Nixon, of course, at the time, you know, promptly vetoed and then Congress actually overrode. But it just hasn't worked out that way in practice. I mean, almost all of the military activities that we're engaged with you know, are, are based are based on that uh, authorization of force, that incredibly vague authorization of force legislation that Congress passed after nine eleven, and and the idea that we're still doing things today that are that relate to that passed so long ago, I think is just one more example of Congress not stepping up and taking responsibility and fulfilling its you know constitutionally designed role. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. Uh, Congress is very good at removing. Um, I, I, if, if, if you're Congress, what you want to do, if you're anybody in elected office, you want to get all the windfalls of a political victory with none of the uh, downsides of it going poorly. Uh, yep. So like, like w- w- one of the things that happens on a regulatory level, and you'll see this periodically, is Congress will um, give a vague mandate to the EPA to do something, right? So it'll, it'll say, we're, we're passing the, the Clean Rivers Act of 2019, and uh, we think rivers should be clean. And we're, we're going to uh, delegate that to the EPA to work out the details. And what that does is create a wonderful smokescreen to where you can go, I know I voted in favor of clean rivers. I'm very, but you know who the villain here is. The villain is the EPA. The EPA yeah. is the one that wanted to shut down your factory. I'm pro-business. I would never do that. And uh, Congress does that kind of thing all the time. Uh, and um, I, I think with, with presidential powers, it's, it's uh, been less the circumnav- uh, circumnavigating the personal responsibility of individual congressmen or, or the body politic as a whole, and uh, more this kind of really short-sighted uh, partisan hackery where um, it, there's a ratchet effect with the power of the executive branch because whenever the, the House and Senate uh, are the same party as the president, um, they view parliamentary procedure as needless obstruction and then try yeah. to give more powers to the president. But the thing is, the, president, the presidency retains that power. So like Donald Trump is more powerful than Barack Obama was. Barack Obama is more powerful than George W. Bush was and, uh, and, and so on and so forth, going all the way back to, to Wilson. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that should that's something that I think too, too few Americans understand and, and that a lot of people should be deeply concerned about. Uh, out of curiosity, Michael, what, what, given that you are concerned about the, the executive branch and that, that you, you regularly confer with the, the force ghost of Edmund Burke, in terms of uh, proper proceduralism and balance of power, what what would you do to try and um, rebalance that that power with the executive branch? You know, I, I think it's in- incredibly difficult because there are a lot of potential ways to do it, but they all depend on Congress stepping up and reasserting its authority. And honestly, I just don't see Congress doing that for all the reasons you think so eloquently outlined. I mean, why Why would they? And so the only thing I can see is actually something along the lines of limiting the president's time in office, like two, three-year terms maybe, because that way at least no one person can do as much damage. I'm pretty, I'm pretty pessimistic uh, about this, actually. Yeah, I I think it's gonna re- I think it's gonna get worse before it gets better yeah. because I I don't I I do think there's a ratcheting effect um and and yeah. and, and and you can see this in politics periodically where just uh, the the incentive structure happens um so like a like a weird corollary would be in in California for a very long time um it, it required like a constitutionally the state of California required a a simple majority to raise taxes, but a supermajority to, yep. uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, the other way around, 
simple majority to to um, have ex- expenditures of spending, but a super majority to raise taxes right. because the presumably the, the conservatives in power at the time didn't want to raise taxes. But, but what what that resulted in was deficit spending because it became very easy to legislate spending, but very difficult to raise taxes. And since California can't you know print its own money or anything like that, it became problematic. Uh, I think something similar like that is happening with the the presidency and the executive branch where. It's always in the the short term benefit of the party in power to give the president more power to squelch opposition, and I don't really see a situation other than um, ideological consistency in which uh, a, a party would att- attempt to bring that back. Um, yeah. And it doesn't seem to really decline when the parties are are mismatched. Um, all that happens is there's a stall. Uh, Veronique de Rougie over at the George Mason, uh, or over the Mercatus Center at George Mason, it, it crunched the numbers a few years ago that the only time federal spending depreciably declines in expansion, it, it never goes down, it just <laughs> grows less fast, uh, is when the president and, and at least one um, uh, House of Congress are, are uh, contraconvened right. in terms of parties. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't think it'll naturally happen. I think something bad will happen. Either a state will have to secede uh, or, or or something. I I'm not sure. What 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 I would do. Uh, I think at this point, um, I I think it would be uh, worthwhile for us to have a constitutional convention. Um, I think it would be an absolute, uh, you know, horrible, dramatic, bile infused event. But I think it's worth doing at this point. In that, it seems to me that uh, we have we're we're constantly arguing about the nature of guns in our society and the nature of abortion in our society, and we've more or less relegated that to the Supreme Court to work out on its own without really clear, um, at least in the case of abortion, really clear constitutional guidelines. So I think it'd be worth having like an up or down vote on that, of just having a national referendum of all guns, no guns, some guns. Uh, <laughs> that, or, that would be something. Yeah, or all, all abortion, no abortion, sub-abortion, you know, something like <laughs> that, right? Um, I think that would be worthwhile. And while we're doing it, I would also restructure the the kind of the power structure of the presidency and, and a few yeah. of the other things. So like, um, I would be, I would be very happy for the Pentagon to have a line item veto um, from Congress. So the, the Pentagon could not say what it wants to have spending on. It could, you know, could send people to meet with Congress or whatever. But basically, if Congress meant we want you to build this one thing, and the Pentagon went, we don't need that. That's clearly just in your district. The, the Pentagon would have the ability yes. to, to, to turn down stuff. I think oh, that would be that. very useful. Yeah, I yeah. like that idea. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, that's a- yeah, would that be, is it is the F thirty five? The F thirty five is like yeah, it's like yeah. Oh, it's just, we, yeah, yeah. we we've been building it for twenty years, and it's designed <laughs> to take down the Death Star or something, and <laughs> and it it just like it, it doesn't work if like it doesn't work during rainstorms, but but every single district has some component of it. Like like Bernie Sanders is advocating for the construction of the F thirty five because it's you know they make the mufflers in Vermont, yeah, uh, or, or or whatever it is. Uh, um, so that's something I would do. The other thing that I actually maybe we can uh, get into the, the the jurisprudential element of this, uh, Michael, because you and I talked about this um, uh, off off mic prior to this is the nature of uh, justices. Um, uh, I would I would restructure how we appoint justices in that I would split the. Uh, the function of appointing judges from the presidency into a new and, and separately elected office. So, uh, you know, the, the, the way the, the Constitution framed the role of the president was initially that the president was executing the, uh, executing the will of Congress. That's where the, the term executive comes from, right? The, the idea was that, mm-hmm. if anything, the president was subordinate to Congress and not right. the other way around. Yeah. Uh, and and we've, we've reversed that. Now, the, you know, now the president's the Ah, the chaplain and the Boy Scout leader and the father of the country and 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 the seer of seers and all those different things, right? So, uh, I I think that that's become very problematic. What I would do is I would uh, I would have a a job called I don't know like the judicator or something, 
and um, we, we would elect this individual separately, and their whole job would be to appoint judges, and that would no longer be the purview of the president. The president would handle foreign policy and all the other stuff that the president does, um, but doesn't handle uh, judges. And I, I think that, I'm sure it would have some unintended consequences, but I think it would at least um, disentangle the, the partisan slap fight to some extent from the presidency and judges. Yeah, I, I uh, well, well, first off, I, I need to get this image out of my head of Donald Trump as a Boy Scout leader, and you planted it there, <laughs> so I blame you. But, but, but no, I, I agree with you in that the, the president that and that kind of circles back to our that sort of meta topic we're talking about, and that's executive power, too much of it. And, and so, I think it would be a good way to try to find a way to make that less of a uh, such a fraught thing the appointing of the Supreme Court Supreme Court justices I mean I, I have some ideas on that as well mine actually wouldn't require a constitutional amendment well that, that's because, good because it's pretty hard to get those so you you're, know, you're, you're, yours might be more workable than mine well you know and, and, and mine actually would just require Congress to change the uh, essentially the the appointment process in that uh, uh, I would I would structure it so that Basically, every not basically every president would get one appointment uh, every term, at least one appointment every term. And that would happen after the midterm elections. So that way there would be more turnover on the court, not necessarily turnover, but the court would go up and down in size. Right. The composition would change. Yeah, exactly. And so I think any one appointment then would be less potentially politically fraught because the other side now i mean how how many people on the left completely freaked out because you know the barack obama didn't get his appointment I, I was one of those folks as well but if we know there's a regular schedule and and this would require a constitutional amendment i think that the senate's advised consent rule would require them to vote up or down on any presidential nominee within a set period of time i think six months is reasonable i think then when there's that assurance that you know, this will change if we can win the presidency and it's not a for life thing. We just have to hope that Ruth Bader Ginsburg lives to be, you know, 100 years old or something like that. <laughs> right. I, I, I think that that would that, that would be a, a useful thing in a lot of ways. Uh, I agree with you. I, I would endorse that strategy. That sounds like a very good one. Um, the you know, the up until Kennedy retired uh, for a significant portion of my life, the uh, the, the Supreme Court composition was. Well, about half the people are, are uh, you know, perceived to be right-leaning and half the people are perceived to be left-leaning. And then the Kennedy's in the middle and everything precariously balances on him. And I'm like, that's a yep. terrible way to, to run <laughs> law in a country, to, to have this. And, and it also makes any one of those um, – one of those Supreme Court justices just incredibly pivotal, uh, pivotal as a result. So, um, so when, when, when Kavanaugh got nominated, I, I thought one of the telling moments um, – and this is very, very early on. Uh, this is before all of the – uh, you know the, the the allegations against him came out when it was just you know a a, a an intro candidate right. um, was was one of the progressive political action committees you know immediately tweeted out um, uh, you know we you know we a hundred percent oppose the nomination of brackets insert candidate name here close brackets uh, <laughs> you know who who's revealed himself to be a monster et cetera et cetera et cetera it was like it was very clear that they were opposed to whoever it was going to be. And I, I get it because as we have had more and more power invested in the federal government and in terms of the executive uh, the branch there too, the, the, the judiciary becomes more and more important as referees. And if, yeah. you know, if, if whether or campaign finance reform and abortion and all these things hinge on, on a candidate, then there's, there's less and less incentive and less and less ability 
to kind of go, you know, we lost the election. Uh, that stinks, but the, but but it's the job of the president to appoint the Supreme Court justice. It's our job to vet whether or not they're they're uh, um, you know sufficiently uh, credentialed and of of sound mind. And and that goes out the window, and it becomes a, an overtly political process. Yeah, I, I think I think that would go a long way. So un- unpacking your model, then, Michael. Um, like right now, there there are nine. Uh, uh, there's eight and a half court justices presently. Uh, since since Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, I think, is in and out of the hospital. And yeah. I personally think she's been dead since 2015, and they've been doing a weekend at Bernie's maneuver with her. <laughs> uh, so, but there's, there's you know, generally nine Supreme Court justices. And, and your, your idea is that there would be um, a, a minimum of one that each president could do. So it, it could expand up to like 14, depending on how young the yeah. justices were. But it's some some years it might be 12. And then, and then there'd be like a minimum the presidents have to appoint. There will it would be. I mean, the president would have the. I presumably no president would decline to appoint one. So, but yeah, basically there would be at least one new Supreme Court justice every four years. And now, if a president, the other part, other wrinkle in my plan is if a president had already made an appointment due to death or retirement in that preceding year, then that president wouldn't get their post midterm appointment because they already made an appointment. So it wouldn't be too many Supreme Court justices, just a little more regular turnover, turnover than we have maybe seen over the course of, course of time. Now, there's been a lot more turnover lately than historically. You mentioned that period you know, where it was pretty much set with Kennedy in the middle and four on one side, four on the other side. But if you take a look right now, I mean, Donald Trump, he, uh, he's had two already in under three years. He could easily have a third. And if he wins another term, you know, you could easily see him getting five five appointments to the court. I mean, Breyer's 81, Justice Thomas, mm-hmm. he's only 71, but take a look. He doesn't seem like exactly a paragon of good health and, you know, fitness and eating habits and all that kind of thing. So I could I could see that happening. And uh, I'll, I'll add, if, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg retires, uh, you know, presumably due to health reasons, but if she were to retire between now and November 2020, and Mitch McConnell went ahead and, and voted <laughs> to approve one of uh, uh, one of Trump's nominations. I, the like you would. I, I'm in Austin right now, and I think I would hear that many heads exploding oh, yeah. uh, in, in Washington from where I am at. Of which I think he would absolutely do. I, I think I think McConnell uh, or or his his corollary Chuck Schumer, uh, both of them are are, uh, are are politicking when it comes to Supreme Court justice picks. I think that uh, you know all, all the stuff about McConnell saying, oh, you know, we we, we need to wait until uh, the, the next election for the American <laughs> people to yeah. uh, choose the justice. That's all balderdash. He if 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 it had been yeah. uh, you know if if the situation had been reversed, and and Chuck Schumer would have done the exact same thing. They they neither of them are are sticking up for the process. They're both trying to get their person in. Um, yeah, I, I like that model, Michael. I, I, I'd add to that. One of the things that, that I would do is um, I think you could take some of the rancor out of the, the judge appointing process by having sort of a pre-approved pool, perhaps, where um, you, uh, you know, both, both parties just start nominating judges. Um, and this isn't necessarily for Supreme Court judges, which I think would, would almost be worse to have as a walking target. But at the district level or maybe the appellate level, uh, having having senators um, nominate judges and and basically get them pre-approved before the the, the seats open up, I, I think that that might right. help. In that, um, once the seats open, then the media scrutiny is on, and and then you, you, it's more in your interest to be, you know, a, a partisan and a tiger and that kind of thing. When it's was a theoretical and abstract phenomenon, then I think it's a lot easier to go. You know what? This person's fine. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I the more I think about it, though, while while I 
well, I'm I'm glad you like my idea, and I think it's more politically feasible, which is you know almost almost not at all possible, but still a little bit. The more I think about your idea, the more I like it because I started thinking about how many Republicans I know, and some of my best friends are Republicans, who uh, said. You know, I hate that. I, I dislike Donald Trump. I never would have voted for him except for the judges. Right. And yep. it's going to be the same way with, you know, with it doesn't matter if it's a Democrat or Republican, that same argument. And it's a it's a viable argument, especially now that there's no more filibuster for any judicial nominations. I mean, you take a look at you could make an argument that the appellate court uh, nominations and confirmations are almost as important. And already Donald Trump has, in less than three years, has uh, confirmed almost a 30 percent of all appellate court judges. And of course, that's where most of those cases stop. And so, yeah, if there's some if there would be some way to get it at least partially out of the hands of the president, I do think that would be a, I do think that would be a better system. Yeah, I, uh, I, I I'm I'm um, I'm in favor of splitting up the the presidency, given how big it's got. Uh, I, I yeah. you know. I'm not. I'll say this. I'm not um, overly deferential to the founding fathers. I don't. I don't view them as saint figures or anything like that. I think they were smart, dead guys, and I, I'm willing <laughs> to take their. I'm willing to take their ideas uh, insofar as they're good. Uh, but I, I don't believe that we need to be, you know, kind of faithful to ancestor worship, just sort of out of due deference. We we need to do that insofar as it's a good idea, um, and insofar as it's a good idea, I think that they were very prescient in terms of. Uh, of you know trying to to balance the the institutional conflict between these uh, branches between themselves um, to ensure that no one branch dominated you know politics and it seems to me that the, the presidency definitely is doing that and, and has expanded yeah. itself greatly over the last few years I mean if if you go back to like uh, Washington and Hamilton there's a completely different idea of how the president acted at that time I mean like you, you go back into American history Hamilton who was then Secretary of the Treasury literally is leading an army to suppress a whiskey rebellion. And I, I can't picture, uh, is it Steve Mnuchin, um, you know, being, uh, right. getting Mnuchin, the, yeah, yeah. Mnuchin, yeah, just him like swinging by the Pentagon to get a cavalry unit to, to squelch <laughs> the, you know, the, the, the Bundys over in Montana uh. or whatever. But it kind of made sense at the time, though, because at the time, Hamilton, who's coming out of this Britannic um, mindset, basically views the president as a constitutional monarch and, and a somewhat ceremonial, well, I shouldn't say a constitutional monarch, a restrained monarch, and he viewed himself as sort of a prime minister because he's the one that controls the money, right? Uh, and and even then, for the next several years, you you have the president still um, somewhat subordinate to Congress and uh, um, and and not meant to be a, you know, a... a, a a, a super figure in terms yeah. of politics. It seems to me the presidency's gotten so big it would be worth splitting up. And I, I would entertain, <laughs> I would entertain directly electing multiple functions of the presidency. Like I would be fine having um, the the. Uh, I, 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 don't, I, I think I would I would be fine splitting its functions into into triune positions of the the person in charge of the federal agencies, the person in charge of foreign policy, and the person in charge of judges. Um, I, I don't I don't think that there's any really great feature to having. That power specifically vested in yeah. one individual, in the same sense that, like you know, the the, the Senate doesn't have to have its power vested in just the uh, the the Senate Majority Floor Leader. The, the the House doesn't have its power vested in the Speaker of the House. It's distributed between you know multiple committees and multiple people. It's the the uh, it's it's the branch itself that maintains the power. And I think you could do that yeah. with the presidency and avoid a lot of the pitfalls we have. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big job, and certainly it's become a much bigger job than the framers ever would have imagined. And and so they're certainly, I, I think it's 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 difficult for any one person, no matter how capable, to be able to master all aspects of that. And so I think there are a lot of a lot of good reasons you or a, lot, a good case you can make for trying to divest any one individual of of that of that amount of power. Nice. When we get that constitutional convention, I'm going to reboot the Whig Party. Oh, I don't know man. What the, I, I, don't, I don't know. What the, I'm not even really sure what the Whig Party did. I just feel like it. You know, it's, it's got some branding. It'd be fun. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, 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 I sort of, I'd love to cover that convention because I think it'd be it'd be a great time. You know, it'd be kind of like a Burning Man meets. I don't know. It'd be it'd be a lot of fun though. Uh, well, so if we, if we were to hold the next constitutional convention at Burning Man, I would be <laughs> really <you> curious <laughs> to see how that would work. It'd probably be pretty cool. I um, like it. Before we before we uh, drop the the judicial stuff real quick, what's your take on uh, Buttigieg wanting to expand the court? Because um, that uh, uh, Buttigieg and a few other presidential yeah. candidates have posited that the way to solve the problem with the Supreme Court is to um, to increase the numbers of them. Is that similar to your plan, or is it just they want to just? No. immediately jump it up to 15 people or, or how does he have it outlined? Well, I, I think that was Buttigieg's proposal when he was a, when he was a progressive and then he realized that he wasn't going to win as a progressive and he sort of changed his mind on that a little bit or mm-hmm. he's not pushing it, I would say as much, but, but no, to me, that's just sort of a nakedly partisan sort of, Hey, we'd like to have more justices. That's no different, no different than what FDR, you know, tried to do with the court packing scheme. So that's right. why I would reject anything like that because it's so nakedly partisan and, and to me, you might get a short-term victory there, but the long-term implications are, I, I think, very, very concerning to me. Yeah, I, you know, I, I have kind of a similar thought on the the question right now of abolishing the electoral college, and I don't, I, I'm not. It's not that I'm a big proponent of the electoral college. It's that most of the people that I talk to that are in favor of destroying it uh, really just want to give power to cities uh, because right. they know that they're progressive and democrat, and I, I don't get the impression that they're really motivated by trying to come up with a um, a, 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 a better power structure as a more beneficial power structure to their party. Um, so like, like I, would, I would make that deal. I would get rid of the Electoral College if in its place uh, we institu- instituted uh, ranked choice voting. Um, mm, I, I, yeah. would, I, would, I would probably be in favor of just about any, any alternative to the Electoral College if ranked choice voting was the, the, the method by which we, we determined the president. But I don't find that to be the case for people for abolishing it. Uh, and at the same time, the people that I find that are also very vocal about uh, destroying the Electoral College don't seem to have the same mindset in terms of getting rid of the Senate, which is the exact same rationale. Yeah. Um, you know, Vermont has the same amount of, of Senate votes as Texas does. New Hampshire mm-hmm. has the same amount of Senate votes as, as California does. That's the same imbalance of power that they're squawking about, but nobody's talking about getting rid of the Senate. Well, and I think that that goes to a deeper mis- maybe it's a misunderstanding. I don't know, but certainly the framers believed that we were, you know, a, a united states of America, and that right. the states as political entities had certain rights, and that and that sure the popular will was important, but it was only embodied in in one part of the government, and that's you know of course the House of Representatives, and and maybe people don't think that we should have representation from the states, but it doesn't really seem like it's an argument that people are having. It's just everyone assumes that, or a lot of the people who argue for this just say, well, of course, it should just all be based on individuals. But, uh, uh, you know, a response to that, a reasonable response, would be, well, why make the case for that? And I think a lot of people haven't really thought that through. Yeah, no, I, I think you're definitely right about that. Um, and and you, can, you can see that, that subtle shift in American thinking in, in various historical documents. And I don't, know, I don't know where the inflection point is. I suspect Lincoln in the Civil War. But yeah. prior to, yeah. let's say, 1860, 
it's these United States. And when people talk about the United States, they talk about it as a coalition. And, yeah. uh, and then at least by the 20th century, it's the United States. And the United States is a title referring to the nation as a whole. Uh, and um, yeah, I, I would, I, when, we, when, we do our, when we do our constitutional convention, um, I, I think it would be worth rethinking the power structure, if, if nothing else, the whole nature of the geography in the United States has changed. Um, you know, when we did the constitution, it was like, what, 3 million people, 80% of which um, mm-hmm. lived within, you know, five miles of, of tidal waters. Uh, and, you know, now it's a different beast. And on top of that, I think the role of cities has changed. I, cities are almost, um, almost the new states. Uh, whereas when we go back yeah. to the, the founding of the Republic, it was, I don't know the exact split. Let's say about 70 to 80% of the population lived in rural communities and, and 20 to 30% lived in cities. Now it's like, you know, 60% live in cities, if not more. Um, like I, like, like basically I, I almost wonder if it wouldn't be a better idea to have a kind of city state type, um, uh, uh, structure as opposed to a state versus federal yeah. structure. Um, and I think it could benefit a lot of people like, uh, you know, I, I know that sounds more like a, like an old school Republican states rights argument, but, um, I was just in Oregon. I, you know, I bet you Oregon could pull off single payer healthcare if they wanted to do it. Yeah. Uh, if, if you, if you removed Oregon, um, and you said, Hey, people in Oregon, you don't have to pay into, um, Medicaid. You don't have to pay, like you, you basically, you don't have to pay into federal superstructures if you take care of your own through single pair, through, through whatever system you want to do, they could probably pull it off. Vermont probably could. And I, I would love for states to have more maneuverability in that realm. And me being a shameless pragmatist and plagiarist, I'll just adopt whichever one works best. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think certainly that those, that, that, that the balance needs to be rethought. I don't think it necessarily needs to be all of one or, or all of the other. And we, you know, getting back to the, the electoral issue. I mean, certainly there, there might be a way to work something out where, we have a system of representation where, okay, you can make a case that California being so much larger than Montana in terms of population, you know, maybe, maybe there needs to be an adjustment made to that. So maybe they don't both get two senators, for instance. And so, but I think oftentimes we, we just tend to get locked into this. Well, we need to burn the house down or we need to keep everything the way it is. But oftentimes I think there's some ground in the middle there where if people are willing to sort of let go of that preconceived idea where maybe there's a little there's a little basis for some sort of compromise yeah well and uh, you're you're preaching to the choir on that I, I i am very much a temperamental moderate in that i uh i fundamentally believe good and intelligent people can disagree on matters of substance yeah uh, and i i am also very much open to the possibility that i'm wrong uh in fact i've been wrong a bunch of times in the past i assume i'm wrong about at least 20 percent of the stuff i currently think i just don't know which part yeah. Uh, and, and for that reason, I'm, I'm willing to entertain arguments from other people to uh, help enlighten me. I, I'm curious on your end, Michael. So you're you're in academia, which um, for for people outside of academia, and particularly for for conservatives, tends to be perceived as a, a hyper uh, progressive institution. Yeah. Um, now, do do you find that to be the case? You said that your uh, your your particular college in Kentucky uh, is more centrist. Um, do you uh, do you have colleagues uh, at at the university who are Republicans? Are they are they in hiding? Do they, you know, do, do, do they, do they walk around wearing Bernie buttons as, as kind of camouflage? Like, like, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, I mean, certainly I think almost everywhere that academics tend to tend to go more liberal, at least outside of the, outside of the sciences and certain other disciplines like economics and so forth. But it, it seems to me that a lot of the conventional or basic understanding that people have of academia is based on a few elite institutions. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that makes sense because most of the elite 
liberal media, if you will, or even conservative media. I mean, you take a look at the top people at Fox News or MSNBC, they're going to they're going to mostly be coming from the same schools, the same coastal, you know, eastern establishment type of schools. And so, of course, they focus much more on that. And, and so to the country then academia is Harvard, Yale, and schools like that. But really, most of academia is schools like, you know, Northern Kentucky University, where I teach, and other schools, and they are they do tend to be more centrist and less, less liberal. Sure, a little bit to the left, but not nearly as much as a lot of folks on the right believe, and I think because they've just been given a lot of bad information. I, I could definitely see that. I mean, the 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 noise, the prestige is definitely going to rest with the the Ivy League schools, right? But the the, the uh, we're living in a weird time right now where um, the the fringes of American politics are the loudest and therefore command the yeah. most attention. But there is a, a very wide section uh, in the middle that that is kind of quiet. Uh, um, I, I I you know my my podcast is called the the political orphanage. I could have called it the exhausted majority uh, uh, <laughs> because because I I think that there's a bunch of us that are like. I don't know. I'm not a progressive activist. I don't. I don't own a red hat. I'm. I'm friends with a bunch of people that yeah. I disagree with. I, I. I just came here for barbecue. Why is everybody yelling? Uh, and and there's there's a lot of that. Why is everybody yelling? Track. Um. I and I, I think you could be right. With, or you you would certainly know better than me. I think you could very much be right with your assessment of academia as a whole. Um. I used to be, um, in an organization called the Oklahoma Intercollegiate Legislature when I was in college, which was sort of a like a mock government for um all of the various student body heads in the state, uh, and, and allegedly a mouthpiece from um, the students to the, the actual state legislature in, in terms of the, the things that they'd like to see enacted into law. In reality, it was an excuse for binge drinking um, for, <laughs> for very type A personalities, uh, and so a lot of fun for me. Uh, and I went to a, um, a, a alumni gala here two or three weeks ago, and was was surprised by the amount of, of people that are currently in it that are students that were uh, much more conservative than I am, uh, and I, I had just sort of assumed that all college students at this point in time were were, were progressive or unaligned, uh, and, yeah. and at least in Oklahoma that wasn't the case. And, and none of them, uh, none of them were acting in the kind of squirrely way I would if I were, um, say, at Evergreen College or if I were on the Berkeley yeah. campus where I'd keep my head down. They were they were pretty upfront about it in a way that indicated to me that they did not feel like they were being targeted uh, in their respective environments. Well, that's good. But, you know, I think a big part of this actually is because it, it seems to me that so many people these days, politics is is like part of their is almost a, a religious type of thing yes. or is part of their identity. Uh huh. And, and to me, I mean, you can look at politics. I think there are people who look at it as a game or a hobby, or people who see it as a business. And those people, you can you can work with, you can deal with. But the people who see it as as part of who they are, well, it's just. It's tough because it's it becomes articles of faith you're arguing against, and you can't you can't reason goes up against faith, and reason gets destroyed. Yep, I I 100% agree with you. This this is something that I've been saying for a while. Is I, I think politics has become the new religion. Yeah, and what what an abysmal religion to pick. Oh my uh, god, yeah. what, what a horrible! <laughs> it would be so much better to get into Marvel or Star Trek or the Rotary Club. There's there's any number of I can think of 30 things off the top of my head that would be a better thing. Yeah. as a faith substitute. Uh, and, and I say yeah. this as, a, as a, a fairly secular individual, but um, I mean, the, the, the key division to me is, um, I, I, while I am no longer religious, I used to be very, very religious. Uh, my, my background's in Eastern Orthodoxy. And, uh, you know, I was going to, to liturgy every week when I was in college and, and high school. And, and then for a few years after then, you you'd go to liturgy. And I don't recall any thunderous um, uh, 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 sermons from from the priest exhorting us to go fight the Muslims uh, or, or about how... 
you know, the, the cosmic balance was absolutely under threat because the Catholics and the doctrine of filioque, and we had to go beat them. And, you know, like occasionally there'd be some, you know, snub at Episcopalians or something, but it really wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't the animating force. And you, you were perfectly capable of organizing it uh, along things that were not Manichaean. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and not having a, uh, a binary worldview with cosmic stakes informing everything. And I, politics uh, has to be that way. Um, yeah. it, it, it's, you know, there's, um, there, there's two major parties, uh, although I, I, as I frequently point out, uh, slightly more than half of the people in the country have decided not to be in them, which I think is telling. Uh, but, uh, but there's these two major parties and they're, they're built on beating each other. And, uh, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Like I, I found, um, I, I left New York about a year ago. I was living there for the last, uh, six years. And about the time Trump got elected, it, it just kind of went into hyper mode where prior to that, um, I, I had I had been working for a show called Kennedy on Fox Business, and uh, and Kennedy's great. And for people that don't like Fox, I get it. Uh, Kennedy's good; you'd like her. Uh, and um, uh, you know, I was working for that. And no one really cared. And I was, I was, you know, at night I was in the comedy community in New York City, and um, the, the attitude from the New York comedy community was like, "Well, you seem like a good guy. Like, do you like gay people? Love gay people. Great. We're fine. No one minded." Yeah. Uh, and then once Trump got into office, it was like. Are you a Catholic or a Protestant? <laughs> yeah, uh, and I was like, well, I, I guess I'm an atheist, and I don't really, <laughs> I don't really fit into that that matrix very well. And oh man, it it yeah, I, I find that a lot, and and I, I I agree with you that if if someone is if if their politics is a statement of faith and a spiritual uh, uh spiritual exegesis, then unless you agree with them, you are you are part of the evil team. Yeah, and I would just think you know if if your high priests are Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump. I mean, you've picked the wrong religion, right? I mean, something's deeply wrong in your life. That's a hundred percent. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more on that. Uh, well, uh, Michael, I think I've. Uh, let, let me think. We, we've covered. Uh, this is not how I thought the conversation was going to go. By the way, no, I, me I thought, I, it just kind of, yeah, it just I, kind of developed on its own. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I, I thought we were going to get into the nitty gritty. You know, I was up last night. Uh, um, you know, feverishly reading up on you know whatever uh, Sondland and uh, and Hill had said, going, oh, I, I don't, I'm not well versed in this. Uh, I I didn't realize that we'd go off. Well, on this I, cool I think actually, what, what about, we're doing uh, here Berkey, is Berkey it, philosophy. Why not? Well, yeah, you know, but I think that I think that's good because people get so much of the in the weeds type of stuff. I, I'd like to think that what we're doing is kind of you know, a broader overview, and I think there needs to be maybe you know a little bit more of that actually, plus Caddyshack references. <laughs> yeah, you know, if nothing else, it gave me an excuse to both watch and write off on my taxes uh, a rental of Caddyshack, uh, which was a, 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 a great way to uh, ride back from Portland to Austin yesterday. Also, I forgot it has nudity on it. I don't know if you've been on a plane recently where you realize you're, you've got some nudity. Uh, it's slightly awkward when you're, you're yeah. sitting in between two 75-year-old women uh, who think maybe you're watching porn. Uh, but, uh, but nonetheless, a worthwhile trip. Well, I, I think we've reached a, a natural conclusion to the, the chat, Michael. So, um, yeah. for, for people on my show, uh, that, that, uh, and, and, uh, you, you seem to be very much, uh, temperamentally in the same category as both me and, and the people that listen to my program of, uh, deep, deep thinkers who are more likely to be pithy problem solvers than, than partisans. Yes. Uh, so if they want to follow you and what you're up to, where should they find you? Uh, you can just look for the politics guys on wherever you Get your podcast or just go to politicsguys.com and there we are. And what about you? Uh, so for, for uh, your, your hordes of minions and uh, uh, centrist college students over at Kentucky and uh, wherever else are listening, uh, I host a show called The Political Orphanage, uh, which as I said is um, 
uh, funny politics. I bring on a lot of uh, comedians, journalists, and, and politicians, and uh, it's designed for people that don't really want to be in that red team, blue team, rock'em, sock'em, robot matrix. And it is, I, I love your show description, politics minus bio plus jokes. I think that's just, that's just killer. And it's so, so well describes the show. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. I, guys, I, I, need to, I need to polish the branding slightly more, but I'm glad that that resonates. Well, Michael, it's been a delightful chat. Thank you. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Listener support is what keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you don't just get our gratitude. You get a supporter's exclusive bonus episode each and every week. Also, supporters at various levels can get additional bonuses like Politics Guys gear and access to a special supporters-only Facebook group. To learn more about all this stuff, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can visit our website, politicsguys.com support. Subscribing to the show also really helps, as does sharing episodes. Word of mouth is, of course, the best advertising, and we really would appreciate it if you tell folks about the show. Leaving reviews and ratings on whatever podcast app you use is also greatly appreciated. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us and we're posting things throughout the week. It's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. Finally, we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Benji Fishman, and Andra Mask. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.